All right, let me turn your attention now to Joshua 2. If you found that, why don't you stand and we'll read together God's Word. Joshua chapter 2, we're going to entitle this Unexpected Mercy as we look at the life of this woman named Rahab. Now I'm going to read a passage starting in verse 8, and I'll read down to about verse 14. And there you're going to hear her confession. And then I'm going to go back and just walk through the passage and point out some things to you along the way in our sermon. Let's start in verse 8 and read down to verse 14. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Joshua has sent the spies out. They've crossed the river. They've gone to Jericho. And now they are at Rahab's house. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land, they melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And then what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of your Son, Jesus that you administer to the souls of your people. There are men and women here that need you to bring back spiritual health. And so, Lord, I ask you to do that. Please do that. Father, I pray that you take this word. We trust it. And I pray that you would that allow me to be a mouthpiece for the Bible and just speak your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would Open eyes and heal wounds and call people to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Believe it or not, this is one of the great salvation stories of the Bible. We really don't have many characters in it. We have Joshua, who's taken a little bit of a backseat in chapter 2. He's sent the two spies. We've got the two spies. We don't know their names. Then we have an unsavory woman named Rahab. 
Whoever thought that Rahab would be a lighthouse for the gospel? And as we read this story, what I want you to do is not look at the characters so much about Rahab and or the two spies or even Joshua. I want you to see that this story, like every other story in the Bible, is about God. In fact, let me, let me use the story itself as an introduction. We already read, already read the primary passage, but let's just use that story as an introduction. You can follow along in your Bible. I, I want you to keep your eyes on the Bible. You can read it for yourself, and I'll just give some comment as we go along. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, Joshua has sent the two spies over the Jordan River to go look at the land, go into Jericho, and spy it out. Verse 1 tells us they get to Jericho and they go immediately to Rahab's house. Like so many men had before. She was the kind of woman that people were used to seeing men coming in and out of her house. But this time, something has changed about that woman. Something's different about Rahab. Verse 2, we find that these men have gone up into Jericho and they've gone to her house thinking that, well, it makes sense. Let's go to a house that's frequented by other men. We'll go there and nobody will know we're here. Chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that they are not very good spies. Everybody knows they're there. Even the king, who's really more like a mayor, don't think of like King David. He's more like a mayor. Jericho's a small place. They're not very good spies. The king knows that they're there. The king knows that they've come to search out the land. He knows what's going on. He sends his own emissaries over to Rahab's house and he says, I want you to hand those guys over. This is where it gets a little problematic because it looks like Rahab's goose is cooked. The Bible says that Rahab, she she knows what's happening. She knows Israel's going to cross. She knows these men are of the living God. She takes them up on the roof and she hides them in verse 4. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, those two emissaries from the king who are looking for the Israelite spies, they come there and demand of Rahab, give them up. And Rahab, in verses 5, 6, and 7, Rahab tells a bold-faced lie. Or if you're a southerner, she told a bald-faced lie. She tricks the king's men. She says, look, if you'll run after them, you can see in verse 5, 6, and 7, run after them, the gates close them, they went out there, the king's men run after those guys, they're gone off the scene, And then she climbs back up to where the men are. That's where we pick it up. Verse 8. And what you have there out of the lips of this woman named Rahab. Verse 8 takes us to the testimony of Rahab, which is the central theme of this chapter. This is where we find out that God, in fact, if I were going to write something down, this is what I'd write down. God works in ways that we never imagined. God works in ways that we never dreamed of, and He does so through people that we never imagined. 
God works in ways we never dreamed, and He does it through people we never imagined. That means several things for us, and I've tried to make this uh, the points of this message something we actually, the application is right in the point itself. And I'm going to use the word never a lot, and so here are several nevers. Here's the first one. Number one, we never lose hope. If you're a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you've given your heart to Christ, you live for Christ, you have no cause to ever, ever, ever lose hope. I'm sure where I get that. In verse 1, we're introduced to this woman named Rahab. <clears throat> Rahab is not the kind of hero you'd stand up in front of church. Later on in the service, we'll stand up a couple of young ladies that are going on the mission field. That, that's who we point to our young daughters and say, grow up and be like that. You wouldn't do that with Rahab. Rahab is an unlikely heroine. She's the product of what we would not just call grace, but it's uncommon grace. What do we know about Rahab? Well, a few things. You can read the story. If you get uh, further into chapter 2, you find out that she actually uh, lives in a house that's built in the wall because she ends up letting the spies down by a rope. We know that. We, we think that she could have been an innkeeper. Verse 1 tells us that not only was she an innkeeper, but she had augmented her income by doing favors for men. We know she was a pagan. She didn't come up with any kind of belief in the God of Israel. That was completely foreign to her. If she did worship, she, she worshipped Baal and, and Ashtoreth and Marduk and Ishtar, all of the Canaanite gods, and, and who knows what she did the practice of worship over there. We know that she's got a reputation, an accurate reputation. Even the king knows what kind of woman she is. She knows that we know that that reputation is bad. Now, I've softened it up a little bit because there are children here in the room. But you can just believe that of all the people in Jericho, in that city of hundreds of people, why in the world? Would God save her? She's far and away the worst person in that city. And yet, look at it now. Feel the story and read it. Look what, look what grace does. We don't know. You can read verses 8, 9, 10, 11. We don't know when she heard about this God. We don't know when she actually came to believe in God. But it happened before the spies got there. When you read verse 9 and 10 and 11, it, it is one of the clearest statements of faith in the entire Old Testament out of the mouth of this woman named Rahab. That, that God, this is what we believe now, this is, this is the core of our gospel, this is the word grace, that, that God by sheer grace would reach over and save this lying, lascivious, pagan woman of ill repute. You know what that reminds us? We never, ever give up. For the person you think's gone too far or too lost or hates the church too much or gone beyond redemption's point, this story reminds us that whatever they've done, they ain't been as bad as Rahab. Think about it with me now. Think about Rahab. 
Think about the rest of her story. I've sort of given you the bad, what happened pre-conversion. Think about the rest of her story. She, she follows through with what the spies tell her to do. She ties the cord in verse 18. Uh, she, she does all of those things. If you read the rest of the story, Joshua 3, we do it next Sunday. They cross over by Joshua 6. They've gone around the walls of Jericho. The walls fall in. Rahab is saved. Israel attacks Jericho, destroys it completely. Joshua chapter 6, everybody dies in Jericho except Rahab and her family. And in Joshua chapter 6, Rahab, go read it. She becomes part of the people of God. So much so, if you, if you flip the Old Testament and get to the very first page of the New Testament, there you remarkably find Rahab's name. She's included in the lineage of Jesus. She's the great-grandmother of David. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, when he writes his little letter and he thinks about how God works, he pulls out Rahab and says, she is righteous. When the author of Hebrews, when he decides to chisel out the Mount Rushmore of the Bible and he's, he's chiseling out all of those names of heroes, he looks back over the course of Israel's history and he sees Rahab. And he, Hebrews chapter 11 puts Rahab's name in there. A woman that lived by faith. Now, I want you to see it. When you think about Rahab, you remember when nobody else can, God can. Here's a picture. There was nothing about that woman that attracted the love of God. It's only the grace of God. Here is a picture of the, the free and sovereign grace of God that saves a rank pagan like Rahab. Now, be careful how you read the Bible this happens so often in Bible-believing circles. People love to read the Bible, and what happens is you, you start to what's known as eisegete. Exegesis is putting truth out. Eisegesis is putting yourself or truth in. Be careful when you read the Bible to put yourself in the story. A lot of times people will take the story of Joshua, and you'll do a leadership series on Joshua, and you hold Joshua up as a leader, and certainly is a, is a fine thing to do, but if you don't watch out, you start putting yourself in the position of Joshua. You become Joshua in the story. Look, you're, you're not Joshua in the story. You're not even the two spies in the story. You know who we are? We're Rahab. That's who we are. In this story, if you've got to put yourself in this story, we're in the position of, of Rahab with nothing in us that makes God want to love us except the fact of His free grace that He gives to us in Jesus. That we're the sinners. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London preacher of another age, Spurgeon, when he looked at this passage, he, he says, when the, devil, when the devil tells you that you are a sinner, just thank God because Christ died for sinners. And it's because of His grace. It's because of God's grace that we never lose hope. Who have you lost hope over? Remember Rahab. Pray for that person. Let me give you something else you'll find in the passage. But not only uh, never lose hope, number two, we, we never, we never give up. What I mean is, if you're going to be somebody in the passage, go ahead and be Rahab. 
She was saved at some point. We don't know when. She believes. But that's not kind of the way we see her operating. Go with me there to uh, Rahab. Since we're studying Rahab, let's think clearly about her. Verses 2 and 3, we find out, we see that the king in Jericho, he knows that the spies have come from Israel. He knows that they've gone to Rahab's house. He knows that he sends people over there. Sends soldiers there. Now let's start at verse 3. Let me read from verse 3 down to verse 7. Watch what happens and listen to Rahab. Let's go to verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all of the land. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Look, go, you need to run after them. Pursue them quickly. Maybe you'll overtake them. The editor tells us here, But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so, verse 7, the king's men, the, the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the king's men ran out of the city, the gate shut, they ran all the way almost back over to where the Jordan is. A lie. Now she's already a believer. This has been problematic for a lot of people. She's already a believer before the spies get there. What we find her saying is actually her profession of faith. It's not her conversion. She already has been converted, to use our language. The spies get there, and her solution to saving the spies was to lie. Now, there's been lots of debate. I mean, I've... There's all kind of excurses and commentaries to talk about the uh, ethics of her lying and wartime mentality. And is it best if you were protecting Jews from the Nazis, you wouldn't tell the Jews they were at your house? And all kinds of articles written on this ad nauseum. I would just pause and say, don't forget who she is. She hadn't been a convert very long. When she's faced with a problem... She just did what she knew. This woman don't have any shame. That ain't the first lie she ever told. And so she just lies and said, That's, I lied to protect the spies. Whether or not that was a good thing to do, she didn't think about it very much. But let's pause and remember. It's wrong for us to impose on new believers how... Long-time believers live. What's right is for us to impose on long-time believers that they shouldn't be living like new believers. It's the, it's the two words. If you want to write them down, they're two theological words. Uh, it's justification, sanctification. They are different. Justification is the legal stance we have before God, when you come to Christ and now you have the righteousness of Jesus, you are considered just in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for you. That is a one-time event that lasts throughout eternity. Justification. Sanctification is something altogether different. Sanctification 
is the process of us growing stronger and more like Christ. Sanctification takes a lifetime. And sanctification isn't just one straight, angled, upward roll. Sanctification has starts and stops and fits and and setbacks and problems and sometimes dormant. And then starts again. Let's give this woman here some slack. We, we, we need to make sure that when we think of her life, she's just a new believer. She hadn't learned the ethics of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. She hadn't talked through and thought through what is the right way to solve a problem. And for us as believers, if you're a Christian, you can't look at something you've gone through or done and, and, and let that be some black mark on your record that follows you the rest of your life. That's not how sanctification works. Justification holds and sanctification grows. So we can never stop striving. We we can never stop trying. We can never stop praying. We can never stop reading. We can never stop repenting. We, We trust that every new day brings new forgiveness and mercy. Isn't that what Jeremiah said? Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah says that the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Sanctification. We we never give up. We never give up because God never gives up. And the New Testament says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We never lose hope. We never give up. Let me give you another Uh, Another never. Number three. Number three, we never, we never stop praying. Never stop praying. Let me show it to you in verses 8, 9, and 10. Do you see her confession? Just stay right there in the Bible. Go with me to verses 8, 9, and 10. Just read what she says, especially in verse 9 and 10. Let me read it to you. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, listen to her statement, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land, they melt away because of you. Look at the statement in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Remember Israel crossing the Red Sea? We've heard how the the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction, which means whom you killed. Read verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, she says, God is the giver. Verse 10, God is the deliverer and he is powerful. Verse 9, she she recognizes God's sovereignty. Verse 10, she recognizes God's ability to deliver through, through the Red Sea. Verse 10, she recognizes God's power to defeat, to defeat enemies. And, and look, based on God's sovereign power, she's going to ask for something. Verses 12, 13, and 14, she starts asking for her family. Rahab is going to ask that her family, out of the hundreds of people in that city, she's asking that God will save them. You read the story and you see that God did it. Now look at me, what, 
What, what are you? What are you asking for? What are you asking God to do? When you read about God's powerful presence, what are you, what are you asking God to do that's going to bring honor to His name in your life? What are you asking God to do that is going to adorn the gospel, that's going to make the gospel look beautiful in your life? What are you asking Him to do? What, what are you asking God to do that's going to bring healing to your soul and, 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 and the joy of the Lord into your life? Are you asking God to bring that? Who are you asking God to save? Who are you praying for that you're asking that, that God will open her eyes to see Jesus? Who are you asking God to deliver? And, and as you look at your life, don't forget now, look, look at it. We're Rahab. You look at your life, you realize that you, you are a picture of God's good grace. Who are you praying that God will do that in? I mean, we look at the, um, look at the miracle that God did in Rahab, and we hear her faith. We see what God can do in that woman. And we're reminded that God works in ways that we never dreamed and it does so through people we never imagined. He does that to remind us that we never lose, we never lose hope and we, we never give up and we, we never stop praying. I want to press on that a little further. Verse 11, number 4, we, we never despair. I want you to write that down, some of you, that, that phrase, we never despair. You might even want to personalize it, I will not despair. Because there's plenty in your life that if we were to stack it up on a sheet of paper compared to most people, there's good reason for you to despair. I'm asking you to hold on to verse 11 now. Circle it in your Bible. Put a star by it. However it is, you mark your Bible and go there to verse 11. You ought to just block it out. Make it your theme. I mean, when you read it, have you ever heard a more clear statement of faith from a new convert? Rahab's Rahab's declaration in verse 11 is remarkable, and it deserves some reflection from us. In fact, let's just look at the end of verse 11. I, I, I wrote verse 11b in my Bible. This is what she said. <clears throat> for the Lord your God, for the Lord your God, He is God. He is God in the heavens above. He is God on the earth beneath. I mean, here is this uh, pagan lady of the night affirming the dominion of Israel's God, Yahweh. Not only that, she's affirming the, the dominion of Yahweh over all the other Canaanite gods. N not only that, here is this fundamental sort of declaration about God. Let me just give you a couple of words to think about. When you read verse 11, you hear her declare the, the primacy I'd write that word down. She declares the primacy of God. And what I mean is that, um, that, that He is above all, that He must be first in all. Do you believe in the, pri in the primacy of God, that He should dominate your thoughts and dominate your life and dominate your affections, that the primacy, the primacy of God is that, 
that he is on the very forefront of your lifestyle, the primacy of God. You read verse 11, she, she absolutely declares the sovereignty of God. And when I say sovereignty, I mean the absolute control that God has over all things. It, this is not new to us, but it's new to her. That's what she says in verse 11. That, that if he is completely sovereign, he is God in heaven, God on the earth. That he must be trusted. I want you to write the word sovereignty. And the question, do I trust? It's not, it's not hard to trust when things are going well, when, when times are happy. It's hard to trust when they hurt. It's hard to trust when they fall apart. And that, that's what I'm asking you. Do you actually trust that? A book that has helped me uh, to some degree is a new book by John Piper. It's a huge book. It's 700 pages. It's the book Providence. It's kind of his life's work. And uh, it's, it's a little circular. It'll feel repetitive. And it's not meant to be read from cover to cover. It's almost like a reference book. But he takes all of the Bible and just shows God working, God working providentially. You see sovereignty in verse 11. But listen to uh, another word that you see here. It's the word exclusivity. You see how it's, it's narrowed her focus? Verse 11, she says, The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. He's not one of many gods. He is the only God. When when they get done, she climbs down and goes out to the parking lot, and in her car, she scrapes off the coexist bumper sticker on her car. She says, I don't believe that anymore. That's how the Romans would control people that come in, and if they had different religions, different gods, they'd say, you know what, just pile them in. They can join all of our other gods. That's how, I mean, she, who knows the things that she worshipped. And here is this declaration of the exclusivity of, of Israel's God. Here is the hallmark of true Christianity. This is the claim of Jesus. This is the strength of the gospel. This is why it's so offensive, and this is why it has power to save, because it's about a holy God that loves sinful people that are separated from Him. And the only way to be united to Him is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to purchase sinners so that any sinner that believes, I'm asking you to trust that. Take that word exclusivity and and push it a little further and you'll find the word singularity. Singularity. What I mean is that that He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. that, That phrase, you see that phrase, you should... That phrase, God in heaven above and on earth beneath, uh, it's the fourth time it's used in the Bible so far. Now, I know we're only six books into the Bible. There are 60 more. But three other times that phrase, God in heaven above, He is God in heaven above and earth beneath, is used only by Moses. And he uses it only in conjunction with, with, with the Ten Commandments. In, in Exodus chapter 20 and Verse 2, you have the second commandment, and he says, because he's God in heaven above and earth beneath. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, deuteronomos, the second law. He says it again. He's God in heaven above and earth beneath, and then he quotes the second commandment again. God in heaven above and earth beneath. There's this 
singular, she's, she's embraced the singular truth about God. There's another uh, word to help us think through verse 11. It's the word prerogative. This one gives us the most trouble as American Christians. This is where we struggle, that we certainly want to say He's God in heaven above and on earth beneath, and as such, that means He has absolute prerogative with His creation. It's good for us to remember that He is the potter, we are the clay. And one of the greatest signs of a growing Christian maturity is when you can move away from resenting what the potter is doing with you as the clay, and when you can start being content. A sign of Christian maturity is, is when you can learn to rejoice in God's prerogative in your life, even when His ways are not matching up with, with your ways. Because He's God in heaven, God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And because of that, we never despair. We, we believe Romans 8, 28, that he's working all things together for good for those that love God, even when they're bad things. I've run pretty hard through this passage, and we've talked a lot about Rahab. I want to take you down to verse 18. And I want to remind you in all of this to never we never take our eyes off Jesus. The gospel's in here. Here in verse 18, you'll find it. Tucked into, tucked into this story about Rahab and the spies and Joshua and Jericho is this one little signal, this one little gospel signal. It's, it's right down there in verse 18. Listen to what the spies tell Rahab to do. What will be the saving signal for her and her family. I'm going to read it to you. Here comes deliverance in verse 18. The spies say, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord. Bells just start going off in your head. You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and, and all of your father's household. Scarlet Israel will march up to Jericho, circle around the walls, are going to fall, and in the window of one of those walls will be a scarlet cord that reminds them, saved. It would remind them of the day when they were saved. Back in Exodus chapter 11, the tenth plague, the angel of death would come through, and any person that did not have the blood of the Passover lamb on the do doorpost of their home. The blood is what saved them. You take these two things and you look over the scope of the Old Testament and look right over into the New, and there you find the cross of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus shed to deliver His people to to free us from sin, to, to cleanse us in His righteousness. And, and this story right here, Joshua chapter 2, reminds us that God 
God works in ways we never dreamed of, and he does so through people we never imagined. If God will save Rahab, God will save you. If God will use Rahab, God will use you. We never take our eyes off Jesus. Will you join me as we pray together? Your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord. I want to just ask a couple of questions, and, and I just would invite you to bow your heads with me. You can even close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. Some things to reflect on. Maybe you feel like your past redemption's point. This story is a reminder. No one ever outruns the grace of God found in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Ask God, even now where you're sitting, God, save me based on what Jesus has done on the cross. I believe that. I believe he died in my place. You're going to ask God to save you right now. There's a lot of you here that already you, you, you've given your life to Christ, you're converted, but there's not been the sanctification. It's time for you to, to take up the mantle of what it means to follow Christ and be a Christian, to trust that God can use you, to, to rejoice in that. There are others of you here that really you've been carrying wounds for way too long. God's grace not only saves, God's grace heals Turn to Him and ask Him to empower and strengthen you for what He's given you to do with the rest of your life, the grace of God. Father, thank You. Thank You for this story of grace, and I pray that You would apply it to the hearts of Your people. I pray that when we look at Rahab, we see ourselves saved by grace. Help us to be useful, be honored in Your church, bring healing to those that hurt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.